going to kick off episode 269 of Monster Kid Radio with a song from the band out of Australia, St. Kilda, Australia. Specifically, it's the St. Kilda Gamma Rays, and this is the song Do the Gamma Ray. It's from their album Girl on a Motorcycle. You can find them over at the St. Kilda Gamma Rays.bandcamp.com. Follow the link in the show notes when you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema. Of yesteryear, I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to have my friend, my longtime friend, and a podcast celebrity. If you've been listening to podcasts for any length of time, you know his voice because he used to call in to my old show, this show, the Down Place show that I do with Casey and Scott, a couple of other podcasts he's called into, the B-Movie cast. He is formerly known as Richard from Wichita. He is now Rich, the monster movie kid, and he is bringing the movie Night of the Big Heat here to Monster Kid Radio. He and I are going to talk about this 1967 Terrence Fisher-directed joint. This is a fun film. I had a lot of fun talking about this movie with Rich. We're also going to play a round of the Classic Five and just kind of catch up because I haven't had Rich on Monster Kid Radio for quite some time. Time. It's been a very long time. How long? Well, pay attention to the conversation. We're going to talk a little bit about it there. You're going to be able to hear Rich on other podcasts as well. You can read his work on his blog. We're going to talk all about that with Rich. And of course, there will be links to his site, Monster Movie Kid, in the show notes. Again, monsterkidradio.net is where you're going to find all of that. And you can head over there right now, start reading the notes, as long as you keep listening, because I'm going to spin a couple of trailers. And then we're going to get to that spoiler-filled conversation with Rich, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about a new project I'm working on, well, now. Maggie, look! Nothing can destroy it. It's coming for you from space to wipe all living things from the face of the earth. Beware of the creeping unknown. This woman is about to learn a terrible secret. She will never be the same again. Because this man knows that same secret, he will never speak again. To both of them has come terror in the form of... The Creeping Unknown. Three men went into outer space. Only one of them came back. Came back a strange, distorted creature, haunted and possessed by something beyond human understanding. What was the terrible secret he could not tell them? There's a whole new world out there, a wilderness, uncharted. And he's been there and come back. He's got the map. Unlock his mind for me, Briscoe, and find it. I know you can do it. It isn't just a question I know the strain and tension you've been under, but to stop now when we're so close... Brian Donlevy, he dared an experiment that shocked a nation. You've destroyed him like you've destroyed everything else you've touched, Kent. There's no room for personal feelings in science, Judith. An experiment that created the creeping unknown. around the entire area, evacuate all public, get information to check up every movement that's likely to take place inside this radius tonight. Yes, sir. Warn everyone not to touch anything unusual they may find in the streets. 
film productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Hammer, that 1972 black exploitation film starring Fred Williams, love that movie. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Better not be the 2003 flick starring Adam Goldberg, you know, the Hebrew Hammer. 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Egypt, 4,000 years ago, a land of strange rituals and savage cruelty. Many of their secrets are still hidden from the eyes of 20th century man. Secrets that protect their dead. Supernatural powers that once released can live again in our modern world. The Mummy, The Living Dead, bringing terror and death across 4,000 years. He was a high priest of the great god Karnak, until one night he attempted the ultimate in blasphemy. He was condemned to guard forever the princess he had loved and protect her from intruders. and destroy those who desecrated the tomb of our princess. He who robs the graves of Egypt dies. He who robs the graves of Egypt dies.
please. I'm Dr. West, but this is Dr. Stanley. Now, we've completed going over Dr. Phillips' notes, and I must warn you that we're faced with a very dangerous situation, Dr. Stanley. A remote island destined for total destruction. If you think there's something running loose on this island, you can't leave me alone. Tony, this could Please. be... Please, don't leave me alone. Not let a keen on going down in their saddle again. Out of an experiment on life came a devastating death. Science creates. Can science destroy? Now, this is very difficult to explain. But there are some creatures loose on this island, and they're dangerous. What do you mean, creatures? I wish I could tell you more, but we just don't know exactly what they are. Come on, let's get out of here. Listen to me! They're inactive now because they've defined it, but we don't know for how long we can't stay here, so come on! Oh, David, I'm so proud! So am I! Fiction or fact? This could really happen. Are you all right? No! There's one out here. He's in the car, quick! Can this horror be destroyed? David, hmm? do you really think we can get out of this? Well, I think we... We stand a good chance, a very good chance, yes. But you don't really believe that, do you? Not 100%, no, but I'd like to believe it. Can these terrified people be saved from certain death? Fire, bullets, bombs could not penetrate its impregnable shell. But something did. What? See Island of Terror at this theater soon. It has been almost... Three years since I've had this guy on the show as a guest. He's called in a couple of times. You know, he's been involved with some feedback. But Rich Chamberlain, man, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. It's been way too long. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me back. You know, even though you haven't heard my voice, I have been listening each and every week to the show. And you got, you're got you just knocking it out of the park. So i uh glad the, that I was part of the birth of Monster Kid Radio. That's right. And, uh, yeah. I love I was there at the beginning, and, and uh, yeah, I've been listening, and it's been uh, fantastic. You're just doing some fantastic work, and, and talking about the movies we all love. You always feel like you're part of the conversation, whether you're in the conversation or not. You're very welcoming, and so I'm I'm so excited to be back. Oh, I appreciate that, man. And listeners, that's how you get on the show. You don't have to lay it on thick about how awesome. No, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've wanted to have Rich back on the show, and he's right. He was at the very very beginning, episodes seven and eight when we talked about the day the earth stood still. So it's been quite some time. But you're no stranger to podcasts. I mean, you've been calling in, you've been involved in the B-Movie cast, and recently, I guess, has, how long? Has it been about, about a year now you've been working with the Dread Media podcast? Yeah, I started last uh, July. And, and in an indirect way, you're responsible for that. Oh? Yeah, well, I discovered Dread Media because of you. You were doing a crossover episode in your previous life as Mail Order Zombie. <laughs> you did the, the Blind Dead series. 
and you did a crossover with Dread Media. And I listened to the episode over at Dread Media and I got hooked. You know, I was like, wow, this Desmond Reddick guy, he's kind of cool. And I've been listening to Dread Media ever since that crossover episode and uh, I would never have discovered it otherwise. And last summer, I had uh, a movie in my hands I'd watched and I wanted to review and that was Tales of Dracula. And I discovered that film because of your uh, interviews with Joe DeMuro and, and the others of the film. And uh, I was kind of sitting on it. I had this review. I wanted to write it for the blog, monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Shameless plug right there. Look at there. that plug. Look at that plug. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't want to wait on it. I was doing Christopher Lee films. Christopher Lee had passed, and so I was doing this whole series of films I was reviewing. And I didn't want to wait on it, so I reached out to Des, and I said, hey, would you be interested if I did a, an audio review? I had been leaving voicemail on this show for years, and he had you know, oftentimes said, well, you're practically part of the show anyway. And he loved my voicemail, so he said, absolutely, send in what you got. And so I, I did about a 10 or 15-minute review of it. And like the next day, he said, I love this. And he said, would you like to become a, a regular member of the show? He, Whatever you want to do, weekly, monthly, you cover, you know, you pick the films, your pace. And, and I was like, absolutely. You know, it was awesome. And I was very thankful and appreciative. And I've been doing it ever since. And sometimes I do what I'm doing over the blog. Sometimes I go into sync if he's got a, a particular theme month like August. It was apocalyptic August. So I did the Omega Man and Damnation Alley and Soylent Green and February it was werewolf films. And he even got me to watch some Giallo films in uh, December, which I almost didn't participate in because I'm not a big fan of Giallo. I struggle with those films. And uh, I, I did some research and I picked out a few films and I ended up really liking them. They were my favorite Giallo films. I thank you for that because you got me introduced to Dread Media and I'm having a lot of fun with that. Doing quick little 10 minute reviews. I can't go into too much detail. I'm just, you know, part of the bigger picture, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. So uh, thank you for that introduction to Dread Media so many years ago. Bringing people together. That's <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Des is a good guy. Des is a longtime friend and Dread Media has been there. I think he launched his podcast just a couple of weeks before I first started getting into podcasting myself. So he's he's a mainstay as far as I'm concerned, and his show has definitely evolved and grown over the years. I've been on the show a couple of times. I miss it. I, I need to coordinate having him on MKR at some point, then maybe do another crossover of some sort or something. I, I don't know. Yeah, he's been doing the show. I think he's Come up, up to episode 454, I think. So he's, he's definitely mm -hmm. been around since... You know, yeah, since day one, he's been around a long time. I didn't go back and listen to those first hundred episodes. You only have so much time in a given week, but I've listened to everyone since then. Of course, now, you know, yeah, shameless plug again, participating on it. It's a little weird hearing my voice on there, but, you know, I've had some of those experiences in the last couple of years. I've had some of those weird firsts because I, I've been doing some work with the Basement Subletter 4 magazine and had some mm -hmm. opportunities to actually sign some autographs, which has blown my mind. I'm like, really? I'm just, I'm a guy. I'm writing. I'm, I started Monster Movie Kid for fun. I just, I wanted to share my thoughts. I'd done a couple of movie reviews for uh, Nick Brown's Be Movie Man website who I had met through the B-Movie cast. Then I said, well, I could launch my own blog and it's free and I could just, you know, if, any, if one person reads it, great. You know, it's, for me, it was just fun to sit down and start writing creatively again. And uh, this will be my fourth anniversary coming up uh, this October of the blog. And because of that, I've had some stuff published in the, the Basement Subletter of Horror magazine. And in this big picture, the guy who runs that, Joel Sanderson, I met because of the B-Movie cast. Looking for a film, The Beast in the Beginning of Time, I found him online, we connected, 
And that film ended up getting reviewed over at the B movie cast. That was one of the first films I did over there. So it's all this big puzzle piece, this podcast community that we have. It's just kind of all, you know, interlinks in ways that you don't even know, you know, two years down the line, something transpires from somebody that you met two years earlier. So it's, uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. It's definitely a community that I'm proud to be part of. You, you find all the connections here and there and the way people know each other, you know, through the podcasting, outside of the podcasting, it's all just a wonderful community to be part of. And I'm, you know, I, I got to say, man, even before you started contributing regularly as a guest or doing reviews on Dread Media, you were Richard from Wichita. So, I mean, you were calling in all the time. So you're a longstanding member of, of the potosphere as far as I'm concerned. So thank you for being part of that oh, for me. And thank you. Yeah, Richard from Wichita. People still know me as that. Vince at the B-Movie cast still struggled with that, you know, right up in, until uh, the last time I, I was on there. Well, because I'm Richard from Wichita. <laughs> Richard from Kansas City doesn't flow. You know, Richard the Monster Movie Kid yeah. you know, was a little better, and that's why I kind of started going with that. Hey, this is the Monster Movie Kid. But, uh, yeah, Richard from Wichita, I can't get away from it. This, you know, unlike you, you've kind of gotten away from the Brother D thing. You've been able to, to shake that a little bit. I'm going to have to work on getting rid of uh, the Richard from Wichita. Yeah, I, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, you know, if I could go back and redo it, undo it, I, I would. Just because... You know, these days I'm trying to get some writing off the ground and things like that. And it's not like I can put, you know, such and such novel by Brother D. That doesn't, you know, no, not going to work. So, you know, it, it's a branding thing as far, you know, for me. But no, I hear you. Yeah, it was, it was a struggle. And, and I still get called Brother D every once in a while from people. By people, people like me who just kind of occasionally remind yeah. you of your past and you just kind of sit there and cringe. It's like, yeah, thanks, bitch. Thanks. I appreciate ah. it. Yeah. No, I fondly <laughs> remember those days as well. That's, you know, that's how I got to know you. And so, again, kind of the big puzzle here. You, you take all these little puzzle pieces and smile at them years later and uh, love the work that you did there and, and loving the work you're doing here even more because these movies are, they're in my blood, they're in your blood. And uh, I mean, even the worst of the worst, we can still find entertainment in them. The movie we're going to talk about today may not be one of the best, but it's got Christopher Lee, it's got Peter Cushing, and you know, anything with uh, more Cushing and, and more Lee, just that makes it better. Oh, sure. Cushing makes everything better everything i agree wholeheartedly before we get to the movie though before we get to the movie though rich there's something that i do on the show these days that i wasn't doing almost three years ago i want to play around with the classic five with you okay all right so i've got the deck of cards here now listeners may know that the classic five is a game that we play i've got a deck of cards with each card having a separate question having to do with classic monster movies it's usually yes or no this or that style questions there's no wrong answer unless you're completely off base and then i'll tell you um <laughs> Uh, these are all randomly uh, shuffled here. Scott Morris actually wrote a couple of these questions for us as well. One of these days, I'm going to put this online and make it available. But for now, I'm going to play it with Rich. Are you ready to play the Classic Five? I, I am, and let the audience know there has been no you know, preparation on my part. I'm going into this cold, so <laughs> there is no secret behind you know, quiz show you know, revelations. No, I, I have no clue what you're giving me, so fire away. All right, so here's the thing that I love about the Classic Five is more often than not, whenever I draw a card or a question here, typically the question has to do with something to do with the show. It's not planned, but I kid you not, the top card, top question, Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing? Ah, awesome. All right. <laughs> How appropriate. Which one do you prefer? You know, Peter Cushing. Christopher Lee, for me, I mean, they're both great, but Peter Cushing is somebody of the classic era that I so desperately would have loved to have just met for a moment. You know, I love collecting autographs and going to shows and, and you have those that are better than others and, and better experiences. And even if it's just a fleeting moment, 
Peter Cushing is somebody who I just, you know, you never hear anything bad about him. Never. In all of his movies, he just, he brings a certain quality and just a class and just, you can just kind of tell he loves doing what he's doing. Even if the movie is just certainly towards the bottom of the barrel, you know, he, he has a way of elevating it. Christopher Lee is an amazing actor, but he did have an air about him. If I was to meet, you know, two of them in just an environment, I think Peter Cushing would have been just fantastic. Christopher Lee, better than average chance there would have been an air about him. I still would have enjoyed the, the you know, interchange, but uh, I'd always have to go with Cushing slightly over, over Lee. I love Lee, but uh, Cushing. I'm on Team Cushing all the way. Anybody who listens to me on 1951 Down Place knows I'm, I'm on Team Cushing all the way. So, all right, so far you're winning. <laughs> all right, <laughs> awesome. All right, card number two, question number two. The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits? Twilight Zone. Yeah. Twilight Zone was a show I didn't see until, gosh, I was probably in my teens. I lived in a town that didn't have a UHF station, and it wasn't until we got cable, and I was probably 12 when we got cable, my world was opened up because there was a couple of UHF stations that we got from Kansas City, actually, and uh, all these shows that I had read about or heard about and shows I hadn't even heard about, all of a sudden I was watching all of these. Twilight Zone was one of them. And uh, I didn't discover The Outer Limits until probably when they were released on VHS. Maybe, I guess they used to be on TNT in the late 80s, early 90s, and I, I would watch some of them there. Twilight Zone, the, the stories, all the seasons that are half hour, those stories just fit so perfectly. And there's a great balance of stories from the creepy, the scary, to sci-fi elements. Outer Limits, while it's great, is certainly all science fiction. And sometimes the hour-long episodes, as great as they are, there's some padding. Um, now, I think the hour-long episodes of The Outer Limits are far superior to the hour-long episodes of The Twilight Zone. Uh, that's a rough season to make it through. Uh, there's some good stories in that season, but there's a lot of padding. But collectively, Twilight Zone, you can't be a Rod Serling. He was just uh, a genius, and that series is one of the most iconic television shows of all time. Exactly. I agree. Again, you're winning. Okay. I'm, I'm going for that trip to Hawaii or, or the brand new There we car. go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Card number three. Question number three. The Son of Kong or Son of Godzilla? I'm going to go with Son of Kong. When I think of Son of Godzilla, I think of Godzilla's Revenge. And that movie is just... <laughs> A unique piece of celluloid. Son of Kong, it just, it goes so well with King Kong. I mean, it fits so well. You got some of the same cast. Well, it's not as, obviously not as good as King Kong. Yeah, I find memories of that. First time I watched it, it was a weekday afternoon in the summer. They were doing movies, you know, it's like those afternoon million dollar movies, whatever they called them. And that was the first time I watched it and discovered it. And I was like, oh, I didn't know King Kong had a sequel, you know, and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was certainly a level down in, from King Kong, but the Son of Kong, all the way. Son of Godzilla is a unique piece of celluloid. That's probably the nicest thing I've heard anybody ever say about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, I, I recently rewatched all the Godzilla films over the course of probably a couple of years, and I watched them from beginning to end. Some of the ones in the 90s were first-time viewings for me. I got to Godzilla's Revenge, and I was like, you know, do I really have to watch this again? But I'm that kind of completist. I was like, nope, I'm watching all of these chronologically. It's time to watch that. And I just yeah, there's just no way to make it through that without just kind of beating your head against the remote saying, please let this movie end. That's a rough one. That's a rough one. But, you know, it's it is got rough. Godzilla. So it is, is better than, than some other films out there. Maybe. Probably not. I'm stretching. Okay. 
it's, it's bad. It's bad. It's it's probably, it is it's the worst oh. of the Godzilla films in my opinion. It's it's just a bad flick. And I think part of it's the dubbing. I mean, you got just some of the insane, mm-hmm. irritating things that that little kid constantly says. And then you got Minya, Tadzilla, whatever name you want to attach to it. Yeah. Next topic, please. Yeah. My, my, my brain okay. is starting to hurt. <laughs> I'm thinking too much about Son of Godzilla. All right, all right, all right. Card number four. Two, two more children here. Uh, Son of Dracula or Dracula's daughter? Oh, probably Dracula's daughter. Really? Dracula's daughter, to me, is more of a sequel to, you know, the original Dracula. I mean, and you've got, mm-hmm. what, uh, Edward Van Sloan still in it. I mean, it picks up almost where the, you know, Dracula left off. You have the Bella Lugosi lookalike dummy that... So there's a connection, right? Although I like Lon Chaney Jr. better than Gloria Holden, Dracula's daughter tends to work better in the Dracula film series. Son of Dracula, you know, is good. But by that time, the universal horror films are starting to take just a slight dip. You know, that that's at 43 time frame. You were starting to see the, the Frankenstein film series kind of dip down a little bit. The Mummy series had taken a dip. So uh, Dracula's daughter just has a feel to it. I don't know. This to me is always just a little bit better than Son of Dracula. Barely. Son of, it barely edges out over Son of Dracula. They're both great. I love Universal horror films and I love Lon Chaney Jr. So uh, there's certainly some great stuff in that. But yep, Dracula's daughter. Okay. Okay. And, and final card, final question. Who else should Abbott and Costello have met in the movies? Oh, creature from the Black Lagoon. Hands down. Oh, yeah, of course. No. No. Sheer stark terror grips you in underwater 3D in Creature from the Black Lagoon. The most terrifying monster of the ages rises from the sea, raging with pent-up passions. Making every man his mortal enemy, every woman's beauty his prey. Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D, starring Richard Carlson and Julie Adams. Every horrifying scene leaps out of the screen right at you. A universal re-release rated G. Yeah, I mean, we got the little TV snippet, you know, that's always kind of fun to, to watch and, and such. You try to think, you know, they met they met all, you know, Dracula and Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster and, and uh, we got Invisible Man and, and stuff. Yeah, Creature was, was a no-brainer. I would have loved to have seen a nice jungle adventure with Bud and Lou and going after the creature, the creature going after them. That would have been classic, hands down. Oh, I'm eating goosebumps. That would have been a blast to see Feature like that. would have been great. Well, it's fun to see that little that TV snippet. Even I mean, it's not much, but I mean, you just you get kind of a taste of of what just a taste of what it could have been. But I think part of it was the the fact that the Abbott and Costello series by that point, I mean, Creature was still active. That was an active film series they were doing, as opposed to you know by the time they were doing the Mummy and Invisible Man, those were characters that Universal had already kind of laid to rest. That's a good point. Yeah, so I think if they would have done a parody of, I mean, which it would have been in a way, it would have been a slight parody of the creature. Um, I mean, they would have been paying respect to it as they did with the others, but it might have hurt the film series a little bit because it's like, well, there's creature, and then all of a sudden the next year it's they're meeting Abbott and Costello. So it's because uh, Abbott and Costello film stopped in '56, and I think '55 was the last of the. Abbott and Costello meat films. So, I mean, you would have only had one, maybe two of the creature films out before they would have, you know, it would have met up with Abbott and Costello. And I think that might have hurt the trilogy a little bit. Good point in terms of timing. It's something I hadn't really considered. You're right about the TV spot. It's fun. It's just fun. And I think it was what, the Colgate Comedy Hour? Is that what that was? I think the, the so. TV series yeah, I've heard there's a better print of it that's been found. I saw that it was going to be released on DVD or Blu-ray or has been already. That's actually a good 
clear print of it, but I hadn't wow. seen it. So, and I can't remember what that was going to be on. And maybe it was on an Abbott and Costello Blu-ray or something coming out. They were throwing it on as an extra because, you know, the one that exists is like a kinescope version that's that's certainly still enjoyable to see, but it's a little rough around the edges. Well, listeners, if you have any leads on this saying we want to see it, definitely something that I think uh, all of us at Monster Kid Radio and Monster Movie Kid and, well, pretty much everywhere else, people would want to see this thing. Rich, thank you for playing the Classic Five. Absolutely. Always fun to do that, kind of kind of warm things up a little bit. Now, a little bit ago, you were talking about how sometimes you like to match your themes over at Monster Movie Kid to the themes going on at Dread Media. And you are intentionally doing a month of Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Vincent Price through both your blog and your spots that you're doing on Dread Media because May is the birthday month for these three giant gents of horror. I had wanted to do it yeah, last year. And actually, of course, Christopher Lee was still alive at that time. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I ran out of time, you know, and I, I couldn't get it done. And so I thought, well, I'll do it next year. And, and of course, I'm getting the chance to do it now. Unfortunately, Christopher Lee has passed. A lot of the movies that I, I was going to cover last May, I ended up covering in the summer uh, as I was kind of paying respect to the, the memory of Christopher Lee. So when I, I started looking at what movies I wanted to do this year, I, I decided I wanted to go for some of the lesser talked about films, um, you know, picking just some random selections and, and uh, you know, some of the stuff as I'm recording this, some of the stuff I've got coming up, uh, uh, Peter Cushing's Hammer film, uh, Shatter which is an action flick. It's, it was the last film he did for Hammer. It was not a horror film. Uh, it was one of the last films they did. It doesn't really get talked about. I'm not even sure it's ever been given an official release here in the States. Um, I think it has. It's something that we talk a little bit over uh, over on 1951. Uh, excuse me. It's something we talk a little bit about over at 1951 Down Place because it was a film that was produced the same time they were doing Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, and we did cover that movie over there. Yeah, it was definitely um, towards the end of the run. And, yeah. and, uh, I think if it, I think it, you know, if it does have the release, I think it might be one of those out of print here in the States. Unfortunately, a lot of the Hammer films that were released had kind of gone out of print and some of them are getting new Blu-ray releases and such. So it's, it's mm-hmm. one that doesn't get talked about. And, you know, I'm taking a look at, uh, Christopher Lee's Pirates of Blood River, uh, you just covered over at 1951 Down Place. Uh, oh, good. That'll be I, fun. Yeah. I haven't seen that actually. And, and I, and you're, I've listened to the, that episode and I'm like, I've got to check it out. And so, uh, I'm looking at like the Vincent Price, Dr. Goldfoot films. Uh, was it, uh, the bikini machine and the girl bombs? I mean, I've never seen that. Oh man. You've never seen them. I never have. No, I've seen, Oh, I've seen the, the, the television special that he made between the films. Oh, okay. This, I get a feel for, for, you know, and of course it's Vincent Price. So I kind of know what I'm getting going in. It's like even the most, serious of films there's just a touch of that vincent price humor and so i know i mean with this theme it's got to be you know got to be fun um i'm looking forward to checking those out so uh, i'm having a lot of fun i'm just doing some lesser talked about films i I did land of the minotaur on uh the first episode of dread media this month and uh, that's a movie that doesn't get talked about because it's not that great of a film and it's got peter fishing and donald pleasance um (laughs) it's a rough film but again Cushing's in the film, so it elevates the film. And you got Donald Pleasance right before, you know, he really sealed the deal with his role in uh, Halloween. You know, it was fun for what it was worth. Um, that time period, unfortunately, getting to the mid to late 70s, Peter Cushing was doing a lot less work, more, more sporadically, and he was doing some films that I still love, but were, weren't really necessarily big blockbusters. I love Shockwave, and Shockwave isn't really 
that great of a film. It's got flaws, but it's still, you've got Nazi zombies underwater. I mean, come on. And you got Cushing in it. So uh, no matter how bad that film is, it's good because you've got Nazi zombies and Peter Cushing. So yeah, I, I'm just having fun with that. These are three horror legends that, that, of course, any chance you get to watch one of their films and get a chance to recognize uh, the good and bad that they did. It's a good thing. And you have fun watching these films. Again, even the worst of the films are still enjoyable because it's got these <laughs> legends in them. And that's something that you were saying at the very beginning of this. And this is something that I picked up from Vince from the B-Movie cast, rest in peace, sir, is that even if these movies aren't great, we still find something that we love about them, so we talk about them. I mean, you were talking about Land of the Minotaur, and I haven't listened to the episode yet. It's on my iPod, so I'm really eager to hear your review. No, it's not the best movie in the world. Yes, it's a little rough. The first time I saw it was on a, a pack of drive-in releases. So, I mean, it has that drive-in-ish, kind of almost grindhouse-ish kind of feel. It's not the best movie in the world, but man, if I don't love that movie. It's because of Cushing and Pleasance. I mean, I've got the one sheet for the movie, for crying out loud, because I love it so much. It's just not that great of a film, but it makes me smile from ear to ear every time I watch it. I have that same DVD drive-in set. That's the first time I saw it as well. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah, these films make you smile. Yeah, like I said, even if it's, you know, maybe a paint-by-numbers script and, and, and such, it, you know, still, it's good. And, and Cushing, like I said, he just had a way of elevating any film that he was in because he was such a gentleman. He had such a, he didn't have an air about him. He just, he just had a presence that just, you couldn't help, even when he was being a quote unquote bad guy or a mad scientist or the head of a, of an occult or whatever, you still liked him. You couldn't help but not like him. I think there's been only maybe, <laughs> I, know, right? I think only one or two times in films you're like, you know, you're thinking, what was it? The, the Frankenstein film. Uh, what was it? Frankenstein? Uh, uh, must be destroyed or something. Yeah. yeah one of those yeah, ones. The 69, yeah. Frankenstein right. must be destroyed. It's <laughs> that, you know, you've got that scene in the bedroom with him and you're like, that's eh, not really. In, in character, even with the character of uh, Dr. Frankenstein, it was, I thought, a little out of character. And that's a rough scene to make it through. And I know that no one involved really liked that scene either. So th that's one of the few moments where you're thinking, uh, beyond that, I mean, he's evil. Yeah, you're sitting there cheering him on. And, you know, sorry to the poor saps who are going to be the victims to whatever he's doing. You know, it's, it's Peter Cushing. I'm going to go, I'm going to go on team Cushing. I'm going to cheer for him. That's right. But you can't help, but just be drawn to what he does. Even if he's just a guest star in a movie, that's how he's credited in the movie. We're talking about this week. You like that segue. This is <laughs> that's how he's credited in the movie. We're talking about this week, which has had a couple of different titles. I know it as Night of the Big Heat because that's the title on the Blu-ray, but it's listed on the internet, and I think this is how you referred to it, Rich, was Island of the Burning Damned from 1967. And interestingly enough, the copy I've got is not the Blu-ray, and I need to get the Blu-ray from it. I had this copy recorded off of AMC during their one of their Monster Fests. Wow. Uh, I had converted it to DVD, and I had forgot that until I plugged it in and watched it. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's when AMC used to be good. They uh, <laughs> And they used the title Island of the Burning Doomed. And I just, I had kind of like huh. floored me. I was like, and that's the, the, you know, the title at the beginning of the, you know, the movie. That's the title card. I'm like, what? Island of the Burning Doomed. And then I did some quick, you know, checking on my research. And sure enough, that was the, the U.S. television release title when it was released in theaters in 71, which was, what, four years after its release in the UK, they renamed it Island of the Burning Damned, and then a year later they renamed it Island of the Burning Doomed for the television release because of the word damn was still a bit taboo in the 1970s. You couldn't say damn on regular G-rated television. 
I remember watching Planet of the Apes back in the 70s and that final scene with Charlton Heston, they had to cut out the words, you know, which of course takes no. away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I oh. vividly remember it would go silent. There was also a time they did the same thing with, uh, you know, some of the times that the broadcast had gone with the wind. <laughs> they would cut out that final damn. It was like the key moments of both of those films and uh, the censors would have to kind of blur that out. So not surprising that they renamed it Burning Doomed, but a little surprising because I hadn't caught that before, that that was the, the TV print that I was watching. But I know the Blu-ray is, is a much better print that I watched. And it's, it's something now I've added to my list because I didn't, once I was watching this, I was like, hi, there's got to be a better print to this. And uh, sure enough, I know there is now at the Blu-rays. The Blu-ray transfer is pretty good. I, I like it quite a bit. I picked it up and I think I watched it pretty much right after I watched the Island of Terror Blu-ray, which I feel like are movies you can watch back to back and make an awesome double feature out of. Oh, Island of Terror. Similar cast. Oh, oh yeah. yeah I love it. Yeah, you oh. can get this on Blu-ray. It's available. Let's see. I got it out of the UK, I believe. But Peter Cushing is the guest star in the film. Christopher Lee's in the movie. Patrick Allen's in the movie. It's directed by Terrence Fisher, but it's not a Hammer film. It has a Hammer feel to it, definitely. I think yes, with, it does. With Fisher, I mean, there was times if if you didn't know better, you're thinking you're watching a Hammer film. Just uh, the overall feel and look at the film, definitely. I think the you know, the style. I think the fact that you had Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing there. I think. Uh, the overall atmosphere it reminded me of some of their other sci-fi efforts from the from the 50s and 60s. Uh, certain moments and the way certain scenes are filmed, and a lot of that's obviously Terrence Fisher's directorial style, but also the the story sure. in general. There were times that that I was thinking back to like the the Quartermass series a little bit, and thought it that, does feel a little Quartermassy, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. In a different world, you know, it's like a, it, this could have easily been tweaked and turned a little bit uh, into that film series. I just recently. Revisited the uh, uh, the quarter mass experiment, right? The nineteen fifties. Yeah, the yeah. Mm -hmm. that is just a, such a fantastic film, and there's just certain elements, you know, that the countryside locations at the beginning of that film, for some reason, you know, that sense of isolation out in the middle of the farmhouse, out in the middle. I just I thought of that when watching this film because there's the, the isolation is key. That isolation feeling of isolation is key to that to what makes this movie tick. You know, I'm sure part of it was a budgetary reason, a budgetary concern, and I'm sure some of it came from the original novel, but it doesn't matter. The way the movie was put together, it works for that to have this – I refer to it as a ship-in-a-bottle type story where you're restricted to one location. In this case, the location is an island. But you kind of get that isolated feel by virtue of the location and what's going on, and it makes the movie feel epic without – feeling silly. Like, I couldn't believe that what happens to this movie would happen around the world without somebody doing something about it. But to have it isolated to the one island, suddenly it is a little bit more terrifying. If it was on the mainland, it would have been an entirely different film because you would have had somebody like a quartermaster, or, you know, some type of scientist, you know, a well-known big scientist coming in with a team and you would have had the military there and it would have been an entirely different film. So that isolation uh, is what makes it, uh, I guess what's what makes it, you know, tick as a film. It just, it, it makes it gel because these, these people are on this island and they're dying. And then you've got the whole element of the fact that it just keeps getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And, uh, you know, when I, I didn't, I didn't know this until, you know, doing a little bit of background research, I didn't realize that this had been filmed in February and March. And that it was actually quite cold when they were filming it. And they were, they had to put what was like a gel 
to give the impression that they were sweating when in fact this gel was was making them almost even colder. I can't imagine that that was a very fun film to make. I know Christopher Lee does not have very many fun things to say about it because it wasn't a lot of fun. He hated the gel, that gel substance, and, and he just hated the cold. And, you know, he could be sometimes a little persnickety about his roles, and he didn't feel like he had a lot of depth as a character. Um, he was kind of a one-dimensional scientist who was certainly at the beginning of the film, you see definitely uh, a little less than pleasant. And he, he warms up a little bit as the movie goes on, but he's not much. He's still pretty much... Uh, <laughs> no pun intended. Ah, uh, ah. Uh, uh, yeah, I didn't uh, get to that. Uh, there we go. Yeah, I mean, he's... <laughs> I don't know, at the end, you know, you're like, uh, okay, he's, he's, you know, he knows what he's talking about, but still not necessarily somebody that uh, you're going to warm up to. Like, of course, Cushing's character, who doesn't get very many scenes in the movie. I had forgotten how little he was actually in the film, but again, every scene that he's in, he just elevates. And uh, he does get a an interesting, uh, spoiler alert, demise that doesn't come at the climax of the film. You would think that he would have made it to the climax, and he does not, uh, which is kind of sad. I, I would have loved to have seen him at the end of the film um, as opposed to you know leaving the film earlier than he did. The first time I saw this, I thought, no, you can't kill Peter Cushing. What are you doing? I just, I was on Team Cushing from the very beginning, you know, and, and I'm watching this thing and I'm like, no, no, yeah, you can't let him go. But he goes out in a very dramatic way, as was his way, I suppose. Oh, yeah, it was great. I mean, it was great. I mean, mm -hmm. the film really, I mean, even I think Christopher Lee, who gets top billing, he really is second fiddle to Patrick Allen's character of Jeff Callum, that he's clearly in my mind, I think he's the star of the film. A lot of the scenes revolve around him until towards the end of the film when Christopher Lee gets a bit more involved in the action. But Patrick right. Allen wasn't a household name. He had done some some work like in I think, the Dial In for Murder. He had been in uh, Captain Clegg with Peter Cushing. But he he did right. a lot of voice work in his career. So I think that's why, yeah. obviously, he wasn't going to be a, a top draw. There's no way they could have you know drawn people into the movie by using the name Patrick Allen. You're going to use the names Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. To, to draw attention to the film. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, he, he did the voice work. I mean, he with a voice like that, yeah, oh, he's he got a great voice. I, I love his voice. I love him in Night Creatures or Captain Clegg. I know he did a little bit of, uh, he did some of the voiceovers in um, uh, the other Hammer film, The Devil Rides Out. Yeah, he yeah. He did a voiceover for that. And, you know, he, he did quite a few different types of stories and films. And just, to me, he's always going to be the guy from Night Creatures. And to see him in this as the lead, as the hero, which was, was just kind of refreshing for me. I was surprised, again, going back to the first time I saw this, the movie opens with Christopher Lee. Lee's name is at the very top of this whole thing. But the hero doesn't turn up for a good, I should have timed it, but he doesn't turn up right away. I mean, the, the story is picking up with Christopher Lee. And then we move to Jane Marrow as Angela, the, the secretary slash former lover, girlfriend, whatever. Then we finally get to Jeff Cullum, you know, Patrick Allen. And it's an interesting way to structure the film, I felt. For being the quote-unquote hero of the piece, there were certain elements about him that, you know, kind of, I think, detracted a little bit from his, his heroic stance. Because, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, you've got the whole subplot, which almost at times, is, it seems like the main plot of the film, the, the relationship with the secretary. I had forgot again, watching this film, Jane Marrow, I mean, she was just the sexuality that she was, you know, <laughs> releasing in that role in that film. 
you got to know night of the big heat. I mean, that some of that heat was coming from Jane Marrow. She was just, in, in, <laughs> ah, she was just intense in this film. And, and, uh, I was, I was a little taken back again. I had forgot that element to it. I'm like, and, and again, I think one of the funniest lines in the movie comes later on when he's, uh, when Jeff is talking to his wife, uh, uh was it Frankie? Was that his name or her name? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It kind of explaining his relationship with Angela and, and, <laughs> It's kind of sad, but that, that, that moment where he just basically says, what is it? She's just a slut. I was just, you know, looking at her for her body. She means nothing to me. And then that makes everything all right, you know, and, and, and the poor wife is like, oh, well, then that's okay. You know, now that I understand that you were just using her as a slut, that's okay. I just, I, that whole thing just was so 1960s. And you'd know that there would be some woman's group right now if they saw this film remade today and that line came out, oh, there would be, you know, people just screaming about it. It was funny, you know, is this, uh, you know, we're going to be all right, you know, and, and poor, poor, uh, poor Angela, you know, was kind of you know, off to the sidelines. I mean, she was certainly stirring up trouble, but, uh, she kind of gets her new love interest before the movie wraps up sort of in a roundabout way. She, she was definitely an interesting character. I was intrigued when I read that. She was actually at one point considered as Diana Riggs' replacement on the Avengers. I learned that too, actually prepping for this recording. It's like, wow, I I could totally see that. Just the way she was kind of moving and portraying herself in Island of the Burning Damned or, or Night of the Big Heat. Just like I could see her taking on that kind of an aggressive yet still alluring kind of role. It would have been interesting. I think she would have been better than Linda Thorson. Diana Rigg had such a again, a way of being a strong yet very sexual, you know, lead female character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've ever seen any of that last season, the Avengers with Linda Thorson, Linda Thorson did Some not have, it. yeah, she did not have any of that. Um, she, she didn't have that same level of sexuality or, or strong character. Um, uh, that last season, you know, is it certainly as pales in comparison to the previous seasons with Diana Rigg and even the ones before that with Honor Blackman. So I would have, loved for Jane Merrow to, to be in that. I think it would have been interesting. And I think the series might have been able been able to go on a little bit longer than than dying out one more year. I think it would have, you know, maybe a couple more seasons at least with her been interesting to see her interact with Patrick McNee. It would have been interesting. Very interesting to see that. In some alternate reality that did happen. If anybody can get their hands on a DVD of that, no I'm just <laughs> Well, I'm trying to remember be awesome now, to see, right? she was on an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. I saw that in the credits, and I have to go, I don't know which episode she was in. And I think I might know the episode she's in, because it would have been, you know, probably, you know, eight, ten years later. I think there's an episode, I think she was in the um, the Death Probe episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man. I think she was the wife of, like, a, a Gary Collins, if you know who that actor is. He, uh, oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, from The Sixth Sense, yeah. I love The Sixth Sense. Yeah, yeah. I think it was like in the first season, The Six Million Dollar Man, I think she played the wife of him. He was like a Russian, and then she came back like a couple years later and was involved in, in the death probe, you know, that big gigantic probe thing that, that Steve Austin fought. I'm almost positive that was the role she played, and of course now it was a few years later, and that was definitely not a very romantic role at all. And it, it didn't call for that, but I was looking at her credit. She did a lot of a TV work in the seventies and eighties when she moved to America. And, uh, it was just kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, the guest star of the week, so to speak. And I right. remember, I think by that point, you know, I think her opportunity to become a, a sex symbol and a sex star for whatever reason, kind of died with this film. I don't know why she didn't do more 
roles like that. She certainly did it well, but maybe it was the fact that this movie didn't get released in the States until like four years later. And by that point, Mm, you know, as an actress, that, that kind of window of opportunity for her had probably already passed. Maybe after walking around a cold February island in a two-piece bikini with glycerin slathered all over your body, you were just done, you know, using that part of your... <laughs> I can I see that. I can see that. I didn't even think yeah. about that. Yeah, that, that bikini scene had to have been cold if it was filmed in February. God, and, and she's in the water? I mean, she's swimming for crying yeah. out No, come on. Uh, like, Well, that could, oh, have been a, that could have been a double, maybe. But uh, probably, sure. Yeah, probably not. She wasn't a well-known enough actress that at that point they were just probably telling her, go in the water. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy yeah. it. Go in the water. Don't mind that it's you know twenty degrees outside. Yeah, it uh, mm-hmm. definitely would have been. We see the scenes like that. It was a, had to have been a very tough film to to, to make uh, in certain times when you're really trying to act like you're so sure. hot, and in reality you're you know freezing to death out in some of those exterior scenes. Well, and it made sense in terms of when they were shooting because the movie set. During the wintertime, there's a calendar on a wall talking about Christmas. There's the opening bit with the radio station and the weather channel, I guess, the weather station talking about what time of year it is and how cold it is everywhere else except for this little island where it's up into the 90s, which I would think that today if we found out there's an island somewhere where the temperature was 90 degrees and there was absolutely no reason for it, there'd be a pretty big deal made about that. Well, <laughs> you well, definitely, yeah. yeah, you'd have Jim Katori there from the Weather Channel out there in the middle of this heat wave uh, talking about, <laughs> yeah, you know, trying to get his, his five, <laughs> 15 seconds of fame or whatever. Um, yeah, it, it, it would definitely, the media would be all over it. But, you know, 1960s, we weren't as connected. And so you could have things happen on an island oh, that wouldn't get known point. on the mainland, especially when the, you know, the, the radio went down. And you have to think, that's probably not the first time that they had lost connection. I'm sure at some points, maybe a storm came through or something, the mainland would lose connection with this island. And so that probably wasn't necessarily considered that odd to, to lose connection. And they probably didn't even know what, you know, what was going on in this island. But I think at some point, you know, early on, somebody somewhere would have known that, why are we so hot and you're so cold, you know, before the connection got lost. A little bit of a, a plot point there that they really didn't pick up on and it wasn't necessary because it really wouldn't have added to the film right. and in the sense that they were isolated anyway and so by the time anyone from the mainland would have thought to go you know stuff was already going down on the island and so uh but you know a good point though in the fact that that was kind of a a loose end it was you know really i would attribute a, any of the loose ends any of the the smaller bits here and there that may not make the most of sense or may not get connected to the fact that the screenplay for the film that was ultimately used was turned in right before they started shooting the original screenplay. The producer was like, no, we, we, we can't do this. So we've got to redo this. This screenplay is not going to work. So they brought in Pip and Jane Baker to come in and basically do a complete rewrite. So I wonder if any of those little bits and pieces might've been dropped there. Yeah. I saw that the original in the screenplay was, was by Ronald Lyles originally who did, most of his work as a production supervisor. So he really wasn't mm-hmm. an established uh, writer. And I think the fact that they brought in, you know, Pip and Jane Baker, science fiction fans will, will remember, did uh, uh, work on Space 1999. They did, uh, I think it was a 10 or 11 episodes of uh, classic Doctor Who. They created the character of the Ronnie, which was a renegade time lady, kind of the female version of the master. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, they, they did that in the 80s to try to, to stir things up a little bit. Uh, at the time, an actor by the name of Anthony Ainley was playing the master and uh, still playing the part and loved the role and continued to play it uh, for several you know years right up until 
the classic Who era ended in 89. But they introduced the Ronnie as this kind of this another villain of the Doctors. And she was in a couple stories. The first one, she was paired up with the Master. It was, uh, I can't remember the name of that one. Uh, Mark of the Ronnie, I think is what it was called. And then uh, a couple of years later, she came back in her own story called Time and the Ronnie, which was the first story that introduced Sylvester McCoy as the seventh Doctor. The actress who played her, uh, Kate O'Mara, was... A I think that's her name, if I'm saying it correctly. It was written a bit cheesily, you know. I mean, she was just kind of hamming it up a little bit, which was kind of the downfall of that era of Doctor Who. Get to the mid to late 80s, I think they were playing it too much for for camp at times, and, and weren't as serious as it was in earlier years, and that was kind of hurting the show. They were definitely writing the character that way, but certainly they have a very big corner of the Doctor Who universe. They are responsible for creating one of the, the primary characters. So a couple of Doctor Who connections in this, and not just Peter Cushing, but who played who a couple of times for the film. Yeah, definitely. And if you really, if you really want to do a stretch, their connection with Space 1999, Chris yep. Lee was, was on there as well. So, uh, he did an episode of that, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Peter Cushing didn't, but uh, Christopher Lee did. One of the better ones. That, that's a series that I, I, I've tried to get into that again over the years. It is a bit dry at times. It's fun. That Christopher Lee episode was, in my mind, uh, one of the better ones. Again, I don't know how much fun he had doing it, but it was uh, fun to see him on screen. You know, we've talked a little bit about how much fun he had making these movies or genre films, whatever. The Blu-ray that I have of this movie has a commentary track with Pippin, Jane Baker, and Christopher Lee. Yeah. And he kind of downplays it a little bit, but he doesn't seem as dismissive of it as he does some of the other movies that he had done in his career. He does take a couple of shots at Hammer and being labeled a horror star, but nothing overtly negative about this movie. Of course, he makes it clear this is not a horror movie. This is a science fiction film. I can't do a Christopher Lee voice. Boy, I wish I could. But he keeps insisting this is a science fiction movie. It's not a horror movie. And he hadn't done any horror movies from 1970 onward, which we know better. <laughs> we know that he had done some horror flicks uh, since then, but he, he makes it pretty clear that this is science fiction. So it's not quite below his standard of not being typecast as a horror actor, you know, that sort of thing. It's kind of always funny to hear him talk about that. Yeah. He, he is one of the horror icons and he never really embraced that. Yeah, in science fiction, I often find personally that if you look at the history of horror films versus science fiction films, yeah, there's been a few science fiction films that are clearly on on a level far above a lot of most horror films. But when it comes to to making a, a like a a B grade film, I think it's easier to make a better B grade horror film than a B grade science fiction film. I've seen a lot of cheap sci fi films over the years, and a lot of like old science fiction films from the fifties can be very easily dated by some of the outer space travels and, and such. I mean, it's it's charming and fun to watch, but you can watch a horror film from the 50s, for example, and not necessarily know you're in the 50s unless you're like looking at styles or cars, but the overall story, you think that you're, you know, it could be easily, could be modern day, whereas a science fiction film and some of the outdated sci-fi technology definitely, you know, kind of pulls you out of the moment. At least that's the way I've, I've always viewed science fiction versus horror. I, I think it's easier to have horror films stand the test of time better than some science fiction films. And I would agree with you because with the sci-fi films, they don't tend to shy away from trying to show you the alien or the spaceship and that sort of thing. And I love them. You know, give me a good Paul Blaisdell monster and I'm, you know, it's alien. You know, I, I love it. But with a lot of the horror movies, and they make a point in this one, they don't show a lot of the monster. They don't show a lot of the 
violence or the death. They have to either because they can't afford it or for censorship reasons or whatever. They don't show it. And because of that, I feel like it ages better, too, because what you're imagining in your brain, in your mind, as you're watching the movie, doesn't get dated. Whereas as much as I love a Paul Blaisdell monster, well, I love him. But they would not fly today. When I saw the the monster reveal at this once again, which doesn't come to the end, and that this story would work incredibly well as a audio drama. Again, you really don't get the reveal until the end, and then of course, you know, it may not live up to your expectations. The, on, as an audio drama, you have this vision in your mind of what the aliens look like, and then when the big reveal is made at the end, it's not spoiled by the visual. And when I saw the aliens, I, I kind of I harkened back to Island of Terror. They were mm-hmm. kind of similar a little bit in style and, and design a little bit. And a little bit of doing a little bit of Star Trek here reminded me a little bit of the uh, the Horda from yes. the Devil in the Dark episode. That's it. I, I was watching that and I'm like, that reminds me of a Star Trek, but I can't remember which one. You're absolutely right. That's the one. Totally. I mean, this is that little kind of sluggish little blob that just kind of moves and stuff. Uh, I was reading, you know, the, the description before I rewatched the film and it was Someone was talking about how the aliens looked like fried eggs. And I started thinking, I couldn't remember what the aliens looked like in this movie because it's been so long since I've seen it, probably a good 10 years. I immediately started thinking of the time frame. Okay, this was filmed in early 67. There was those little fried egg aliens on the the Star Trek episode, Operation Annihilate. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, oh, please don't let them look like that. You know, let it be something a little big, bigger and more dangerous. And, and uh it was kind of a bigger version of that, really, at the end. kind of made me laugh a little bit that uh, sometimes the, the big reveal of the aliens don't always work in some of these films, and it's, and it's better this one because the aliens really are more talked about and unseen, and, and they're heard, and uh, you see the light, but you don't really see them until the very end of the movie. And once you see them, yeah, it's a little bit of a letdown, but it doesn't detract from the rest of the film, I don't think. Uh, they're not on screen that much. And it doesn't take away because there's a lot of intensity going on in those moments. And so I think that that's what keeps the film working. I mean, if you think about the time and they talk about this in the commentary too, you know, special effects were not up to the, you know, whatever. Yeah, they look a little but you know, the aliens and Island of Terror, they to me always looked like giant raviolis with tentacles attached to them. So, you know, I mean, I, I get that. But it's the way the characters react to these monsters that really give it the fear for me. So give me more of the close-ups of the people screaming, grabbing their heads with the flashing of the red light. That's where the fear comes from. Not from looking at this thing, but their reaction, especially Peter Cushing's death. Just the way they behave as they die and what these things are doing to people. That's the terrifying moment for me. I think they had a really good supporting cast. I I think they had a really good supporting cast. These unknown actors, as you said, they, they were able to convey the horror, you know, when they were seeing what we couldn't see, you know, they didn't overact. I think it worked really, really well for, again, a group of relatively unknown actors. For me, I mean, everyone was unknown except for, again, uh, Cushing and Lee. And I think at the time, for the most part, I think most of these, you know, supporting actors would have been as well. I mean, again, Patrick Allen had done a, a handful of films, but he wasn't a household name. And you know, Jane Merrow had done, a, you know, most a lot of television work in her career. So, again, she wasn't really well known. But everyone did a fantastic job of conveying, you know, this this horror at what was, you know, happening on this on this isolated island. The casting is spot on. I think they did a great job picking people who could portray that without going over the top. And even somebody who doesn't die per se, but still has to react to what's going on around her, you know, Sarah Lawson as Frankie. Man, I felt for her so much. 
her husband was cheating on her is probably going to cheat on her again. She walks in on him, you know, macking on, on the cute young secretary. What a, I, I just felt terrible for her. How she just kind of, you know, again, after he says that line, you know, it was like, you know, what he thought of her, but I love you. And, and, you know, she means nothing to me. And yeah. And then she's just like, all right. And she's helping Angela after the big reveal. I mean, she continues to help Angela because Angela's certainly not doing well for the rest of the film. She continues to help her, and you got to think what was going on in her mind. Part of her probably wanted to just go ahead and feed her to the aliens and be done with it. So I did. I felt sorry for her. She was very much the domesticated, subservient wife to her husband. Even in that moment, you know, she kind of had a moment there where she kind of stood up. And then once the husband comes along and basically did everything short of a 1940s slap across the face, she she kind of was like, okay, everything's okay now. You know, now that I know that you're just using her for sex, it's okay. Everything's all right now. I felt, what I does that bad. say about their relationship? You know, that, that's just like, what? Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, well, he drags her there to that island, you know, clearly. she And, you know, there's a moment where she was talking to Angela in the kitchen where she's like, oh, of course, I, I'm not really happy here, but it's, it's what he wants and it's what's good for him. And it's, uh, yeah, you definitely feel for her. And, and you know that, I mean, as soon as Angela gets there, the, the actress was so fantastic and just some of the subtle things and just the way she was walking, she wasn't walking like a secretary showing up on the island for the first day. You know, you knew right away something was up with this gal because she just had this wanton look on her face and that certain swish of the hips. And and she she had, uh, again, that's that, that sexuality she brought to the role, which was so opposite of what Sarah Lawson was bringing to her role as, as the very demure domesticated wife. And even right down to the mm-hmm. clothing, clearly she, she was not dressed in any type of other role other than I'm the wife and I'm going to do what he tells me to do. And I'm going to wear this very, uh, unattractive, you know, gunny sack of a dress. And, uh, <laughs> and I will, I will do whatever he tells me to do. I did. I felt sorry for her as a character. She certainly, you know, as you said, he's going to do this again. If there was a sequel to this film, There'd be another secretary coming up, and as he was writing whatever new manuscript he was writing, he's just that. That's why I said he's the hero of the piece. But you're kind of thinking there's this other side. It's like I, I'm having a hard time cheering for him a little bit because he's kind of a cad. You know, he's he's not 100% nice to his wife here. He's he's, he's clearly got this dark side to him, which uh, this bad boy image, which I guess in modern films women would find attractive, right? Because bad guys seemingly are always semi-attractive, you know, that's a bit more acceptable. I think in films now, there's no clear, you know, films aren't as black and white now as they, they used to be as far as characters. There's, you know, characters can be multifaceted and there's a lot of quote unquote heroes of films today certainly have very non hero like qualities. Whereas back at this time, this was kind of the beginning of the, of the end of the, you know, 1950s, you know, 40s, 50s, you get into this late 1960s, the clear-cut good boy hero image was beginning to get tainted a little bit as we were getting into this new era of filmmaking in general. By the time you get into the 1970s, some of the change in culture that was happening all over the world, things weren't as black and white as they used to be. And and I think that his character is a prime example of this change in, in society and what was once considered the norm is, is now not, and what was once acceptable and unacceptable is now a little bit more blurred. There's two things I want to comment on. First, I want to go back to the Frankie versus Angela relationship and dynamic. To me, in the film, the most, I don't want to say erotic, but the most 
you know, I'm just going to go with the word erotic. I, the most erotic scene with Angela, the most uh, kind of in your face and arousing, I suppose, is not a scene with her and Jeff, but it's a scene with her and Frankie for me. It's when they're talking and Angela is so hot, she's taking ice cubes and rubbing it up and down her chest. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting to see that scene happen with Frankie in the room versus that scene happening with Jeff. Because there are a couple of times when she tries to put herself in a situation where she's kind of sort of teasing Jeff a little bit, like maybe unbuttoning the top of her shirt. But to see her be so blatant with the ice cubes up and down her chest and her cleavage area and her neck with Frankie in the room, I thought that was an interesting choice. And to me, the most aggressively sexual. You know, Frankie doesn't really bat an eye at any of that, because at that point, she's totally oblivious to the sexuality that that um, Angela is clearly just oozing out of every pore. She's just this very sexual character. And, and Frankie doesn't quite see her as that at that point really isn't even until the moment that she walks in and her husband, you know, and then, of course, all of a sudden, then the big world is opened up to her door is open to, OK, this is what's really going on. And then not even what how many minutes later that door is shut again when her husband comes along and explains how things really are, you know, and it's like, OK. You say the, the door is now open to what things are really happening. You know, when she walks into the study, she opens the door and sees him kissing. When she turns around and leaves, she doesn't close the door. So, I mean, literally, the door is now open and it's all exposed and out there. And anybody who wants to look in is going to see it. Very, yeah, that's it. So, yeah, very good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to comment on, you were talking about this is kind of like the era where things are starting to change in terms of what's acceptable, what's not, who really is a good guy. Do we all have shades of gray, that sort of thing? This is brought up in the commentary track a little bit, and they don't really comment on it too much. But Marcus Hearn is moderating the commentary track with Lee and the Bakers, and he asks Lee if he remembered Fisher having an issue with anything in the film. Because Terrence Fisher, as much as he did the horror movies, the Frankenstein, the Dracula's, things like that, he didn't consider himself a horror filmmaker. He viewed these as like fairy tales, that sort of thing. And there are some things in this movie where do they, they go a little further. You know, they call Angela a slut. She grabs Jeff's hands and puts it on her breast, you know, pretty aggressive. Yeah. And they really don't get into it too much, but it did seem a little out of place for a Terrence Fisher movie for me. As much as seeing, say, like a little bit of nudity at the end of Hitchcock's career and his films, it seemed a little out of place. I don't know. What were your thoughts on that? Did that strike you as odd at all or take you out at all? Again, I think it was, we were entering that, that era where we were starting to see some things that we wouldn't have seen even a, a year or two earlier in the films. Hammer was going through that, you know, where there was, oh yeah, you know, they were going through this period where they were just, you know, to the point where you get to the seventies and just everything was out there at that point. You know, there was, there was really almost no taboos and that was society in general, that time period. Whereas, you know, the sixties for the most part, you know, you look at something some say 60 or 61 and then from 68 and 69, how much the culture and society changed in that decade. You look back at just television shows in general, give you a good example of what's happening and what's not. And, and by the 68 and 69, if you look at a crime drama show, for example, 50s and early 60s, I mean, it was very cut and dry. It was, you know, cops were the good guys and there were the bad guys out there and gosh, golly, gee whiz and that kind of stuff. By the 19, late 1960s, you were starting to see crime drama shows on television like the Mod Squad where the, your, your heroes of I mean, the police, you know, were actually kind of hippies. And it was a change. And I think that when you're a director or a writer and you're in this time period, where things are changing, you either kind of have to gradually adapt your style or you're going to kind of get left behind. And, and I think we continue to see that even today where, you know, style of filmmaking changes, you either adapt or 
you become kind of yesterday's news and you find that work is less coming your way. So I think somebody, you know, even with a Terrence Fisher who had obviously had created these, you know, what to him was a horror sci-fi film in, in 59 was going to be changing by the time 1969 rolled around and you got to kind of have to adapt. And so he probably, I would suspect was maybe not as comfortable with some of those scenes, but, Again, that's kind of the, the big sell, right, for this time period. I mean, you know, even uh, I was I was doing a little bit of, of research on this as well, that there was, I guess, a, a French version of this film that had additional sex scenes added to it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Now, I doubt that Terrence Fisher was involved in that. That's probably... Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a film studio gets the rights and let's go ahead and tack in a few scenes. You've read that before. I mean, I've read that where, you know... Sure. Sometimes these foreign films, they add some extra scenes and stuff. Well, we did that here in the States. Roger Corman did that all the time. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and so, you know, then you get this a film version that is, is very much unlike what it was supposed to be intended for. And you know, that's uh, one of the Santo films is like that. You know, Juan over at uh, the B movie mm. cast has talked about that. I can't remember which one it is, but there's basically the original version and then there's the sexed up version. I think that's just a product of the day that, you know, there was this, okay, well, hey, we've got this film here. If we add this and this and this, you know, we can market it this way. And ironically, I think when you look at someone like Terrence Fisher, his style was definitely, you know, you wouldn't have seen this in some other films. And this film works, though. It's another element. It's another layer to this interesting relationship between Jeff and, and, uh, and Angela that uh, clearly there's, this, this, there's a lot there. And he, he says... No, get off the island, leave. Two seconds later, he's kissing her. She's got a certain sway over him, um, and he's resisting. I personally don't entirely buy the whole, um, she's just a slut, she meant nothing to me, because if that's the case, then he wouldn't have been as drawn to her as he clearly was when she got to the island. I think that's a bit of a line to try to, to save him. At the moment, you've got a wife who's mad. I think it was just a line. As he said, this is going to happen again. I think that, that's a character flaw. It's a big character flaw. I mean, he's, he's the hero of the piece, exactly. but he's got an element that's uh, a little dark and, and uh, not entirely nice. You know, we're talking about some of the Hammer-like elements, you know, Terrence Fisher and all that. We were talking about Hammer earlier. To me, there's something in this movie that is very non-Hammer-like, and that would be the film score. And because I'm a score junkie, i got to mention it. The, the score was by Malcolm Lockyer, who didn't do a Hammer film at, at all in his career, but he did a handful of other movies that I'm very familiar with, including Island of Terror. He did one of the Doctor Who films that we I mentioned earlier. I loved the music in this. It's so kind of over-the-top orchestral, especially during the opening credits. I love it. This is one of those cases where I wish this was available on CD somewhere. It's very unhammer-like and, and definitely kind of enhances the film. Again, in a way, it kind of makes it a little bit unique. It makes it stand out. So, listeners, if anybody has any leads on any Malcolm Lockyer music that I don't already have in my collection, you know how to get a hold of me. <laughs> Just saying. You know, this movie overall, I'm glad we watched it. At the very, very beginning of this, we were talking a little bit how this might not be one of the best. And you know what? Maybe it's not. But I still had so much fun watching it. I could watch this movie... I, I don't know, maybe in about another week or so and still have a fun, yeah, fun time. I don't know if I can watch it over and over and over again, but I would love to sit down and watch this as a double feature with Island of Terror. I think it'd be great. Um, I think this was released as a, a double feature with one of the kaiju films, wasn't it? Oh, well, point? yes, it was released with 
Godzilla's Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that that was, you know, it was kind of odd that it took four years for this film to get released in the States. You know, I mean, the kaiju films, obviously, it was not uncommon for, for a delay. But, you know, for the UK, there usually wasn't that big of a gap. Partially, I think, is because the, the film was made by a company called Planet Film Productions who didn't make a lot of films. They only made a handful of films, uh, Island of Terror being one of them, uh, a movie called Devils of Darkness from 65, which I have in my collection but I have not seen, and uh, something called The Marked One from 63, which I have no idea what that is. And I think maybe that played a part as if, if, if Planet Film Productions, maybe they shut down, you know, whatever. Then, of course, you've got to find distribution for your film in the States, and that takes a while. And so, but still a pretty big gap of four years, especially when you're considering how popular Christopher Lee and, and Peter Cushing were, I can't imagine that that would have been that difficult to find a distributor in the States unless there were maybe some behind-the-scenes rights issues or something that were causing problems, and I couldn't find anything that supported or explained the reasoning why it, it took so long for it to, to get released in the States. With Christopher Lee, with Peter Cushing, and with the success of Hammer Films here in the States, I'm shocked as well, for that same reason. Depending on when the movie came out and, and what movies were being released here, Hammer-wise, were they not doing as well at the time? I know there is a spate of Hammer films there, by Terrence Fisher even, that didn't do as well box office-wise as they were hoping, like Dr. Jekyll and like, like Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll. Is that the one that we just did on Down Place? And a few others around that time period didn't do as well. But, you know, I would still think Christopher Lee, he's a you know, instant draw, especially for a genre film. That's why I'm thinking maybe there was some rights issues or something. If the production studio shut down, maybe it was a matter of, okay, well, you know, how do we get a hand on our print and who owns the rights to it? And maybe that was something that, that you know, we don't know now as to why it takes so long, you know, for it to get released. I was interested in the, in the writer of the film. You know, sometimes you see these based on a novel by, and then you, you see a name and it's like it means nothing to you. You know, it's like, here, here's this big movie that we're still talking about, but there's the story, the core story, you know, came from somewhere, you know, and I'm always intrigued. And I did a little research. The writer was uh, John Lymington. He was actually born John Chance. And he was actually a very well-accomplished okay. author. He'd written over 150 novels and uh, wrote a lot of science fiction novels, none of which are remembered at all. I mean, I was looking down the list and I was like, nothing, nothing was just ringing a bell. But he wrote a, a series of uh, kind of mystery children's books called the the Bunst series. Uh, he did some stuff in a, in a Sexton Blake detective series under the name John Drummond. So he was clearly accomplished at the time, but unfortunately, I think as years have passed, he's no one remembers him. You know, he's he was you know cranking out popular stuff in the day, and uh, unfortunately, you know, a decade later, it seems like he'd kind of quickly been forgotten, which is kind of sad. I mean, you have there's so much out there. And, you know, so many writers whose entire body of work kind of just disappears over time. If they didn't have big hit after big hit after big hit, then their work just kind of disappears. And then this is a guy whose biggest claim to fame now is that he wrote the book that, you know, was the basis for this movie, Night of the Big Heat, that in itself, mm-hmm. you know, isn't the most talked about of the of the Cushing and Lee films because there's so many other bigger films that get the press. But it makes me want to go back and try to find that original novel. From what I've read, it sounds like it was a pretty good, straightforward adaptation. And it sounds like it might be an interesting read. This movie, being based on the novel, actually, the novel was adapted before as well. In 1960, I want to say. 
on television. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. As part of the play of the week. Yeah, I've never seen it. I'd like to see if it, it's available. I'd love to track it down and watch it just to see how it compares, you know, to see how a, a TV version of this story played out done about ten, you know, seven years earlier. I think it would probably be pretty good. I, I've seen some of the, the, the Quartermass TV adaptations, which are fantastic. Anything else you want to mention about the film before we start wrapping up here? Did you have anything else that you had found? You know, I think it was really a good film. I, as I said, I hadn't watched this in, in mm-hmm. 10 years, and while it wasn't, uh, as I said, it makes for people understand when I say, yeah, it's not the best Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, adapt, you know, our collaboration, partially because they don't get a lot of time together. I would love to have seen more Peter Cushing on screen. It really was a lot. It's a lot of fun. There's no way that you can't enjoy this film. When I watch something like this, I it harkens me, you know, back to watching this on a Saturday night, which is how I remember watching Island of Terror for the first time was on the Saturday night creature feature, you know, with Cremation Mortem was my horror host as a kid. And so I, I remember that's where I first watched it. This movie, I don't honestly think that I had watched this uh, until sometime in the 90s. And I'm sure it was on AMC, you know, but the recording I have is from 2006. But I know that it was it was on before that because they, you know, AMC was like the mecca for these films, and in the 90s they were the ones playing all of the stuff. And so that would have been the first time I saw it. I remember even then comparing it to Island of Terror. There's just a lot of similarities, the isolation feel, and kind of going back and forth because in this movie, of course, everything happens at the end, right? That's that's the home base. And then they go off and they do an adventure and then they can come back to the end. And Island of Terror is kind of similar to that style. There's, there's, you kind of have that home base and then they, they go off and they do something mm-hmm. and then they come yeah. back and they're fighting and they come back. And I, I kind of like that. To me, that element works. There was another film, The Crawling Eye or The Trollenberg Terror, which kind of had that same feel. And I just recently saw that as well. And, and, how, you know, that you've got the hotel, you know, and they go off and they go to the mountain and then they come back to the hotel and to the mountain and back to the hotel. I didn't realize until a few weeks ago that there was a TV adaptation of the Trollenberg Terror. Really? Yeah. And the reason I reminded myself of that is because Sarah Lawson is actually in that TV adaptation of the Trollenberg Terror. And uh, that reminded me, I don't know if it still exists or not, but I want to try to see if it's out there. I would love to see a, a, a TV adaptation of that because I love The Crawling Eye. Um, that's a that's a fun fun film. I had a great opportunity to watch it on the big screen as a double feature with the the Quartermass Experiment uh, several weeks. Ooh. We've got a great film series here. You have so many opportunities up there. We don't get them as much here, but <laughs> it's called Cinema A Go Go. And uh, the guy who does this, his name is Daryl Brogdon, and he does a show called The Retro Cocktail Hour, which you would love. It's been going for 20 years. It's a locally produced show. But it's now being broadcast on radio stations coast to coast and around the world. New Zealand radio station plays it, and all the episodes are online, so you don't even have to listen to the radio to get it. It's two hours a week of eclectic, space-age, exotica, television soundtracks from the 50s and 60s. He did one episode. It was a crime jazz episode, so it was nothing but Peter Gunn music and, and anything from that 50s and 60s era. And he loves films. And... Um, about every two or three months, he does Cinema Go-Go, where he pairs up a couple of like-minded films. And this last time, it was The Crawling Eye and The Quartermass Experiment. Uh, last September, it was Attack of the Crab Monsters and Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. And he loves these films. And it's just, uh, you're like-minded, and as you well know, when you get into a theater and you're there with people who are watching a film, and they, they want to be there. And they love these films. And they love them for all their flaws and all their cheesy moments and their 
laughing at the right moment, they're cheering at the right moment, and they're just having fun with it. Um, it absolutely enhances the movie-going experience. You're killing me, man. Uh, I, I know I've got all these opportunities here, but something like that sounds amazing. Every once in a while, he stirs it up and he calls it Cinema Con Queso. He does a double feature of Santo films or, you know, the 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 Lucha films, you know. Uh, he does that. I haven't had an opportunity to see one of those yet. It's been about a year and a half since he's done the last one. So they're like what he's doing. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is just fantastic. I love the radio show. I love, you know, the fact that he loves movies is production studio picture of his production studio just went online last week and they're celebrating 20 years. And you know, you've got, you've got Tiki's, you've got 10,000 records and, and, and CDs in his personal collection that he pulls for his show each week. And then you've got movie posters on another wall. It's just like, yeah, this guy is, is he's one of us. This guy is, is somebody who's a really nice guy. And so uh, I, when I've gone to this, I, I think of you as like, Derek would love this. This is just like his kind of thing. And this is like, this is what I hear him going to up there. And I'm like, I'm so glad we have, we have something like that here. So now, of course, like I said, I, I need to track down that TV version of the Trollenberg Terror. I, I hope that it's out there. You know, let's let's not wait for you to get a copy of that, though. Why don't we have you back on the show in the future to talk about The Crawling Eye, since you like that one, or The Trial and Board Care. But we have another movie on deck that we're going to talk about later this summer. Do we want to mention it now? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Carnival of Souls. It's coming out on Blu-ray from Criterion. Perfect time to talk about it here on Monster Kid Radio. Rich is a fan of this movie. I'm a fan of this movie. I think it'll be a great conversation. We'll do that. What are we talking like sometime in July, maybe? Yeah, it comes out, I think, July 12th. And uh, you okay. know, I, I've got a love for this because this movie was partially filmed literally about 30 minutes away from where I live. I live on the west side of Kansas City. And Lawrence, Kansas, is 30 minutes from my house to Mass Street in, uh, in Lawrence, which is like the mecca of everything that Lawrence has to offer. And uh, I've, my good friend Joel Sanderson has, hopefully, they are going to use some of what he has provided as a Blu-ray extra. He had the opportunity to visit the uh, Centron Film Studios, or what used to be the Centron Film Studios. And so he provided them content that he filmed uh, in the studio and, and uh, just a plethora of pictures. Criterion was in contact with them, and they were wanting what he had. So hopefully some of what he, he provided them is going to be included uh, in the Blu-ray uh, release that's coming out here in a couple months. Right on. Well, we'll keep our eyes open for that. Rich, this episode's going to be coming out probably not next week, but the week after that. So towards the end of May, which means up until this point, there's tons of content regarding Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and Vincent Price over at monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. I got that right, right? Yeah, you say, yes, he did. Okay, okay. There's a link in the show notes, of course, or actually not even the show notes, in the website itself under links. Bam, right there. You can find Rich, or you can hear him on the Dread Media podcast. Uh, let's see. You've got that review of Land of the Minotaur. Anything else this month that the listeners might want to keep an eye out for or ear yeah. out for? Yeah, I'm going to be doing something every week uh, over at Dread Media. The, the next episode, uh, which, again, by the time you hear this, but it's going to be out there. You can go back. I'm going to be doing Nothing But the Night. Oh, man, I love that movie. Yeah, it is a fun movie. It oh, is, it's, God, it's, you know. Oh. It's not what you think it is <laughs> going into it, but it's, it, it is, it's a lot of fun. Early 70s British horror slash mystery thrillers have a feel to them that I absolutely love. Uh, oh, that, man, so good. The yeah. uh, Charlemagne Productions, Chris Reilly's yeah. production studio put that together. The only one and only. did, but man, yeah. mm, the movie's so underrated. So, oh, man, I, I can't think wait that to it is. That. I think that it is. I really liked it. It offers a few twists here and there. It's not doesn't always you know go where you think it's going to go. But again, as I said in my review, 
it's got Lee, it's got Cushing, and actually really have equal roles for the most part in that film. So you see a lot more yeah. Cushing in that. And I'm doing the Dr. Goldfoot films, and then uh, I think by the time the month wraps up, another Cushing, Lee, and Price collaboration with Scream and Scream Again, uh, which was Ooh, the, first of only, yeah, the first of only two films they did. A bit of a cheat. Peter Cushing doesn't really yeah. have any any scenes with with Lee and Price that I, I recall. But uh, yeah, I'm doing stuff over at the block, taking a look at some of the lesser stuff. I'm looking at a Vincent Price film called Convicts 4, which uh, very few people even heard about because it's not horror. Um, it's, yeah. it was early I'm 60s. not familiar with that one. Yeah, it's Vincent Price in a supporting role, early 60s. So he was doing a lot of other horror films at this point. This was just kind of one of his his uh, supporting roles in the film again it's got Vincent Price so I mean it's it, the film is going to be forgotten for the most part except that it's got Price in it and he's like Cushing and Lee elevates whatever film he's in he makes it better so I'm having a lot of fun checking out some of these of course we all know about Horror of Dracula and Curse of Frankenstein and The Fly and House of Wax it's kind of nice to see some of these films that don't always get as much love as the others these are all great films these are all such fun films and they turn in such great work even a movie that you might consider, I don't know, subpar or whatever. Just putting Cushing Lee, Price, or all three of them, you know, is going to elevate the film. You know, House of Long Shadows, that's the three of them with Carradine. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the movie's got some problems. Desi Arnaz Jr. really isn't the best leading man for a horror movie, but you got those four guys in it. Mm. Yeah, I think if you would have had a different actor in the role that Desi Arnaz played, that movie would get a lot more love. The movie as a whole is not bad. It's a good, good enough film for what it offers up. Better actor in that in that role of that writer, um, yeah, would have would have really helped the film out. But whenever you have those guys on screen, yeah, that's, you just want to sit there and say, you know, gosh, we why didn't we have more of this? You know, why you know why do we only have two films that all three of these guys start in? So you just get a taste of what could have been if they would have done a few more collaborations together. Uh, I think it would have been great. Well, we'll have to collaborate more, Rich. We'll have to have you back on the show here soon, at least two more times this year. I'm, I'm, I'm going to hold you to it. Hey, I'm, I am... Uh, hold me to it. <laughs> I am glad to be back and, and uh, you know, just to give me a call and I'd love to sit down and talk movies. So, absolutely. I, I'd be back in a heartbeat and we'll talk about Carnival of Souls next time around. When it- I'm excited for it and I'm excited for the future of Monster Movie Kid. Good luck, Rich, with everything going on and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Take care. <laughs> You can find the movie listed as Night of the Big Heat. It came out from Odeon Entertainment on DVD and Blu-ray in 2014, so it's still out there. You can get your hands on it. You know, I'm looking at the listing over at Amazon.co.uk right now. Less than 22 pounds, and you can have it in your hands to drop into your Blu-ray player and enjoy this movie. This it's a lot of fun. I dig it. And I'm really glad that Rich wanted to talk about this. You know, Rich has been covering the Peter Cushing films, the Vincent Price, Christopher Lee movies over at Monster Movie Kid. And that's monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. He's also a regular contributor to the Dread Media podcast, which you can get to at dread-media.com. That's an excellent show produced by longtime friend Desmond Reddick. Rich's review of the Dr. Goldfoot movies just went live over there, episode 456. Specifically, I haven't listened to it yet, but I can't wait to go tune in because, I mean, it's Dr. Goldfoot in the Bikini Machine. It's cool. This is Vincent Price, I mean Dr. Goldfoot, with plans to possess most of the money in the world. Frankie Avalon knows it. Dwayne Hickman finds out about it. Susan Hart is an innocent, innocent tool of the plan. 
Hello, darling. Jack Mullaney helped make the plan. <laughs> and special guest star, Fred Clark, just doesn't believe it. You're nuts! All right, follow me. These lush bikini babes are built, uh, I mean made, uh, produced to perform. And they have the knack of doing what they're built to do. She walks. She talks. Come here, tiger. She makes love. Did you miss me, precious? Sex has never been funnier. She isn't human. But she is gorgeous. Mr. Armstrong, you're married to a robot. <laughs> Dr. Goldfoot is a dangerous man, but he does have his lighter moments. All right. Shut up. It's Vincent Price as that tongue-in-cheek terrorist, Dr. Goldwood. An exact reproduction and programmed for love and destruction. Poof. A wonderful explosion that destroys not only my love bombs, but their victims as well. Master plan to master the world is seductively simple, but Fabian is one undercover man who doesn't miss a trick. There's only one single thing left between me and control of the world. And introducing Europe's newest and funniest comedy team, Franco and Ciccio, who get tricked by love bomb dolls. All the generals have exploded in a plastic fallout. Goldfoot is making plastic bombs disguised as girls. We've got to go to his villain and unmask him. Vincent Price as Dr. Goldfoot. 
giving love a hot lift. There's something going on or coming off every minute. You know, speaking of Dr. Goldfoot, now you'll hear this probably when you listen to Rich's review. Like I said, I haven't heard it yet, but Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine was shot here. Dr. Goldfoot and the Gold Bombs, that was shot over in Italy. That was a European production. Same character, but completely different circumstances when it comes to the production. Two of the co-stars in Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs are those comedians. You heard them mentioned in the trailer, Franco and Ciccio. Now, while... Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs is not in the Dorado Films library. Some of the films that these two Italian comics made are in our library. For example, the movie is The Amazing Dr. G from 1965, also known as Gold Ginger. It's a James Bond-type spoof. In fact, I even think the guy who played Top Hat is in that film, or at least somebody who looks a lot like him. What is Dorado Films? Well, I talk about this on Facebook, and I've mentioned it here on the show in the past. Dorado Films is your home for European gold from the silver screen. This is a film lab based here in Tigard, Oregon, and you can hear all about Dorado Films if you check out my new podcast. Yeah, there was a soft launch last year, but we are now going full steam ahead with the Dorado Films podcast. Just look up doradofilms.libsyn.com or follow the link in the show notes. We just launched episode one where we introduce you to Dorado Films with the vice president, Enid Caputo. She and I sat down, talked about what Dorado Films was, is, and is going to be. Dorado Films has a Facebook page. Look us up there. We have a podcast page as well over on Facebook. I have to tell you guys and gals, I am so excited about what we've got planned for Dorado Films. I go out there once a week, at least, and I sit down and I chat with them about what's coming up, what I can do to help out, and I just look at the list of films that we have stashed away in our vault. Holy cow, ladies and gentlemen. Now, these are mostly European films, so there's not a lot of crossover here on Monster Kid Radio, but you know what? I'm still having a blast with these films. I'm having a blast with the podcast. If you are interested in Euro spy films, movies like the fantastic Argo man, Ken Clark spy films. If you're interested in spaghetti Westerns, if you're interested in Euro crime films, like a movie called high crime or the great diamond robbery. If you're interested in some Spanish horror like Estigma or the antichrist, Dorado films has got you covered. So please consider checking out the podcast. Again, it's doradofilms.libsyn.com. Here he is. Watch out, for here is a superhuman with the strength of a hundred men. No one and nothing seems able to stop him. Invincible, invulnerable. Argo Man, the fantastic Superman. But even he had his Achilles heel, a beautiful woman's kiss. Kill each other, kill each other. Man, the fantastic Superman. Kill each other. Ah! 
A man gifted with such extraordinary powers that ordinary men were helpless to cope with him. Everyone and everything was pitted against him, from hired killers to the most diabolical inventions of modern science. The world's most beautiful women vied for his favors, or the chance to kill him. each other. Argo Man, the fantastic Superman. which will take you on a journey out of time, carry you on a crest of thrills and laughter from start to finish. Be sure to see this Superman power. Don't miss it. lives in this house. No one would want to live in Balpatar Manor. What stalks these halls? It's a cursed place. Yes, I saw the movie. What hides in these shadows? And who is playing that piano? <coughs> Welcome to the house of the long shadows, home of mystery. <coughs> Suspense. Danger. And now the four masters of horror are moving in, Vincent Price. We came here this evening to unlock the final door to our destiny. Christopher Lee. It would seem, Mr. McGee, that we are imprisoned here. Peter Cushing. It is all I have ever known. Fear. John Carradine. Death is our only true destiny. Joined by Desi Arnaz. You ain't seen nothing yet. House of the Long Shadows. <laughs> <laughs> The murderously funny mystery with a twist. Yes, I see what you mean. House of the Long Shadows. Vincent Price, that's me. Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, John Carradine, and Desi Arnaz. In a Golan Globus production of a Pete Walker film. House of the Long Shadows. Canon releasing. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for sticking around and checking out the show. We are on our new production schedule, which means you'll be getting new episodes on Thursday morning. So thank you for sticking around and supporting us through that transition, through that change. Thanks to Rich for being part of the show this week. It has been way too long. Again, check him out at monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Now, there will be a link to this in our website, monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find everything else you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. We have links to our Facebook page and our Facebook group. If you're a Facebook user, consider giving us a like or joining the group or both. The group will have conversations with listeners of Monster Kid Radio between episodes or even while you listen. Also on our website, you're going to find our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Our voicemail line 
is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. If you have any thoughts about anything you heard in this episode or any of the previous 268, well, that's how you can get a hold of me and we'll talk about it here on the show. We also have links to every song that's appeared here on the show, including the St. Kilda Gamma Rays. And I typically try to announce what's coming up next week on the show. And next week, we're doing another Lucha film. You know, Lucha de Mayo didn't quite work out the way that I wanted to, but I am going out on top with an excellent Santo film. I call it Santo versus the Martian Invasion. Kim Blows might call it something else because he's bilingual. He speaks Spanish. He can read Spanish. He's going to tell us about his experiences with this film, his experiences with Blue Demon Jr. at a recent Monster Bash, and we're just going to talk about this really cool luchador versus alien film. That's coming up next week in 270, in seven days, next Thursday. So come back for that. In the meantime, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. One of these days, I'm going to put that to a beat. (laughs) Of course, none of this applies to the song Do the Gamma Ray. That belongs to the St. Kilda Gamma Rays, really cool band out of St. Kilda, Australia. It's from their album Girl on a Motorcycle. You can find them at the St. Kilda GammaRays.bandcamp.com. Their entire album you can get for eight Australian dollars. Check them out. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.